Hello and welcome to Transforming Education, a podcast brought to you by VEO. In this episode, I speak with Bob Fellows, Head of Education at the College of Paramedics. Bob has had a truly remarkable career and in this episode, I was lucky enough to speak to him about his own career journey, about some of the key milestones that he's been involved in within the paramedic profession and about his own thoughts on current transformative ideas within education in the paramedic sector. If you're looking to train to become a paramedic or if you train paramedics within a university or a college, then I hope this episode is useful for you. If you're not involved in paramedic training whatsoever and are involved in education in another capacity, then I hope this is useful for you too, as we are trying to cover education from all types of different angles within this Transforming Education podcast. I hope you enjoy this podcast and I hope to see you again soon. Good morning, Bob. Thank you so much for joining us today for Transforming Education. How are you? I'm really good. Thank you for inviting me and uh, I look forward to sharing an important conversation with you. <laughs> Fantastic. So obviously you work as head of education for the College of Paramedics and have them for, for some time. Um, I'd be really interested to hear a little bit more from you about your role there and, and, and what you do in terms of education. Sure. Um, well, as you know, I lead uh, a directorate for the professional body called the College of Paramedics and I get a title called Head of Education, which is lovely. Uh, I've been in education in and around paramedicine for many, many years, having joined the London Ambulance Service in 1980. I think probably just as a small aside, it's interesting to know that my father joined in 1950 and uh, did a very basic form of training, civil defence, with a first aid certificate. By the time I joined, um, I suppose I spent about six weeks in classroom, a couple of weeks induction, a couple of weeks driving, and then did six weeks operational. But in relative terms, it was all done and dusted within a very short space of time and I was posted um, to an ambulance station in the northwest of London. Mm-hmm. And I stayed doing that for many years. And, and the other part of my story, I suppose, is my son joined in 2010 and um, he went in as a foundation degree. So we've already seen that transitional change, that developmental movement in education from hardly anything and just literally ambulance driver to when I came in, it was a tendon driver and there was far more clinical positioning on it. And then you get to my son where he's having to do uh, three years at university to actually prepare him for the role. So, yeah, it's it's big times and, and lots of changes. And I think it's going to evolve again. We've just recently moved to uh, 1st of September this year. The regulator, that's the Health and Care Professions Council, have now mandated that all new paramedic programs have to be at honours degree level. And in fact, we've still got five who have now gone to master's level wow. for pre-registration. Yeah. There's 46 programmes in the country. So those early days in 1998, when we had the first degree, now we've gone to closer to 50. Amazing. And am I right in saying that you were involved in setting up that first degree um, back at the University of Hertfordshire? Is that right? Well, I certainly had a big hand to play. Um, it was a case of, I was in conversation with um, a nurse called Guy who was uh, working alongside us, helping to support some in-house education where I was a, a senior training manager in London. And he asked me, what do you think it's worth? And I said, what, you know, what do you mean by an education being worth something? Yeah. And he said, well, it's academic value. So over a period of time, we did some mapping exercises and we realised that 
to be a technician and a paramedic and all the bits that went with it. Um, the vast majority of it was at level four, which was that it was valued at 98 points. And we did then thought, well, if we did some top up courses, we can get to at least a certificate. And then over the next perhaps four years part time, we could have many of our paramedics getting an opportunity to gain a degree on the back of what they've already learned in their experiential learning. And that went through really well. And we ended up with the situation of having a degree um, which we kicked off in 96. Wow. And, and then they went and said, well, we could do this as a full time degree. So um, they involved the then uh, the dean of the faculty, a, a pharmacist called Barry. And we worked with the in-house education programs of Amrit Services, a, a group called the Institute of Health and Care Development. And I remember actually traveling down to, to uh, Bristol to meet with them, with Guy and Barry. And we literally had pieces of paper all over this table. In the space of two hours, we mapped out the first paramedic curriculum and then sold it to them. We then had to sell it nationally. And hey, presto, by 2001, we've got 30 graduate paramedics. Fantastic. Um, it was an amazing step forward. Wonderful. Yeah, it's good. So, uh, on, uh, I mean, that sounds, that sounds incredible, the journey that the sector's gone on in, in a relatively quite a short space of time. Sure. Um, and, uh, I mean, on this podcast, most of the people that I've interviewed so far uh, involved typically with um, education from the perspective of teaching in a, in a classroom mm. or, or, or language teaching. But I, I, with VIA, with we work in lots of different sectors, and I've always thought people who are from... Um, uh, from a school background, would be fascinated by some of the ways that education is delivered within the paramedic training sector because there's some really innovative stuff going on. Um, so I was wondering, from your perspective, what you thought um, or what you think are some of the more transformational ideas in in teaching and education uh, within your sector that you've seen? Well, I think um, traditionally we're much more of a sort of um, a taught course it was all talking mm. about training and i think you'd have to admit that we've moved into an educational position yeah and it is a very vocational type of program where you're taking people who have a passion and a desire to become a person called a paramedic mm -hmm. and underpinning that with the correct courses correct theories and, and and actually using probably what we would probably call a sort of a psychical model or um um, you know, where you're literally revisiting different aspects. So you can't just say, right, you've been taught ECGs, it's done, we move it off the table. Because it, it has to go throughout the whole three years and onwards and into their, um, their post-registration stage where they're constantly adding to their knowledge and experience. Um, so what I've seen probably the hardest challenges is when you take paramedic into a university, is getting the right people in there who understand mm. paramedicine. Yeah. They may be brilliant anatomists and um, physiologists. They may be very good at what they do in pharmacy, but actually relating it to the streets, to emergency care, yeah. is, is a much bigger challenge. And you can do quite a fair amount of interprofessional learning with nurses and physios and radiographers, and, and that's very important. Mm. But, but what we're finding is that it's getting that relation to the street that is so important because it is such a unique environment. We've been talking a lot about using simulation for training and development, in the, especially in the last year and a half, where 
clinical placements have been a real challenge. Mm. And the obvious thing is to think, well, can we replicate that in a different format that's safe, keeps people away from perhaps the more challenging aspects of um, perhaps COVID in this example. And we can do quite a bit of it. And increasingly, we're finding that we have to even go beyond what is considered normal for high fidelity simulation and go to another level where we are preparing people even for the next placement. Uh, I'll give an example of that is that simply sending a student who's got the theory under them is one thing, but actually to put them through practical scenarios on a week by week basis helps develop within them the opportunities to sort of make the theory link to practice even before yeah. they get to practice. But that, I think that's a key thing we've done. Um, we use quite a bit of uh, online uh, training and development now, probably more than we've ever done in uh, higher education because yeah. we couldn't get access to it once everyone had to log on. And even teaching online is different. And even learning online is different. So it's, it's a learning curve for all of us. And I think universities will probably never go back to as it was. I think there'll always be that mixed mode model now. And mm-hmm. I think that's the way it is. And, uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I mean, the country or the world owes a huge debt to people in your profession um, during the you know, COVID-19 pandemic. We've seen such respect and awe for the, for the NHS in the UK in, in the way that the NHS has, has, has dealt with um, the pandemic. But the reality is, you're saying, you know, paramedics have to go through some pretty hairy situations on a day, day-to-day basis. So any way that you can link that theory to practice uh, is always fascinating and interesting to see. COVID hit us like a storm, as we all know. I don't think anyone battened down the hatches and got prepped for it. And there wasn't very much of a weather warning to say what's on the horizon. Mm. One minute we are aware of some news stories, the next thing you know, someone's saying, okay, everybody stop, stay home. In the ambulance paramedic world, uh, you couldn't stay home. So people, and and don't dismiss the other healthcare workers, nurses and doctors and other allied health professionals who also plowed into this. Yeah. But what was really important was that the risk factors that the paramedics and some of the other healthcare workers had to take working so closely with people before vaccines in really difficult, challenging environments with um, reduced access to the correct levels of personal protective equipment, known as PPE, Hmm. was an extra challenge. And the the ambulance paramedic world lost um, over 20 people, uh, died of COVID, um, more than likely, can't prove that, more than likely caught from cases that they were attending. Yeah. And I think that's that's a challenge. And when you're taking a student at the moment out into placement, you have to protect them. But at the same time, there is a level of risk that has to be constantly evaluated. And that, that was important. At the moment, post-COVID, we're experiencing very, very high call demand, which mm-hmm. sounds, okay, that's, that's life. But the highest number of ever 9-9-9 calls in this UK was July of this year. The second highest ever. That's interesting. October of this year. That's interesting, isn't it? Because yeah, because yeah, we would ass- yeah would assume. I mean, the cases are high, but obviously the hospitalizations are lower. So you'd assume that there would be, they would go down. So that's a really interesting. Um, it's. I think it's to do with how people access healthcare. You know, some yeah. of those 
999 call increases are to do with people phoning back saying, where's the ambulance? Oh, right. It okay. doesn't necessarily mean that ambulance services have dispatched more to more patients, mm. but the pressure on the system to respond is high. At the hospitals, you've got the waiting queue because you've got a backlog of, of beds that are, are full and not a possibility to release those beds as fast as they would like. And paramedics in a queue waiting to go in because in many cases, it isn't absolutely life-threatening. If it is, we can do an alert call to the hospital and they will see us immediately. But it's still our people who desperately need to be seen, maybe for an x-ray, maybe for further diagnosis and assessment, people who are very frail and very ill, perhaps with an, with an infection, but you know, there's a queue. That, that's an impact upon students as well, because they then see less cases, but they see the case for a lot longer period of time. It's, everything's changing and you constantly have to think how can we overcome that perhaps with alternative placements or can we increase simulation in placements to, to, to challenge the, the, the pressures that we're in. And the types of simulations that you do with um, or that you've seen sorry um, being delivered to, to become to link that theory to practice so they're quite immersive you know uh, yeah. how, how do they work do they often include things like actors or are they um, using things like uh, AI, or is it real-life situations just filmed with video? Well, there's, there are combinations of that. It is possible to bring in casualty union-style people who do the makeup. Uh, it is possible to buy in uh, actors. We certainly do that in some of the most advanced um, post-reg um, diploma exams that we do for primary and urgent care. Yeah. But they cost money. And of course there's a budget in all of these things. So simulation isn't cheaper, unfortunately, mm. because you, know, you can only do certain amounts of students who tutor ratios within, within simulation. Um, and you may have a cohort of say 100 students. Yeah. You can't all be in the center at the time. So you've probably got to do that session four times, five times, six times with the staff and bringing in extra staff. And so it does cost, mm. but it's, better that, that they do that preparedness and get the, uh, raise up the levels of, of, of retaining people's knowledge and getting people to the high level of achievement. We don't need to and have attrition. Yeah. That's expensive as well. I was going to say, and hopefully retain some, some trainees longer term as well, because hopefully you're preparing them for the real world a little bit, a little bit better so that they're going in with set expectations. I mean, my, my background is obviously from uh, education from the, the teaching side of things and the, prof the teaching profession um uh, you know we have a high level of attrition with teachers um many leave within the within the first five years and i was wondering if there was perhaps a silver lining with with the pandemic have you seen any increases in people wanting to become paramedics as a result of covid or has that gone the other way i, I i'm not sure i just thought you you yeah. might know well what we are seeing is uh, increasing high numbers of people applying to, uh, to go by UCAS mm. to become paramedics. Um, the, the rough numbers are, I mean, when you're looking across 46 units, it'll be slightly different, but it's roughly 60% of people get into uh, one of their top five choices to be paramedics, and uh, the other 40% are normally having to reapply. Yeah. People wanting to go directly to ambulance services to connect with apprenticeship programs 
um, they're probably a 50-50, probably double the number of flights, and those can never possibly get a chance of it. So it, it's increasingly popular, no matter what has been thrown at them with the pressures and the stress and the... Um, and, and we're very straight with them. I'm very honest with them. I was putting something up to a, a bunch of, I call it wannabe paramedics, but people who are wanting to apply to become a student, to become a paramedic, the sort of, I'm interested in this. We're very straight with them and tell them there's a lot of stress. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah. It's, long, it's long hours. It's shift work. It's hard work. It's very physical. You will have anxiety. Uh, you need to be properly prepared in your head that you can handle this. So all of that is all part of it. Yeah. Mm. And do any of the new changes to, you know, things like T-levels and, and so on and so forth, will, will they affect your sector at all, do you think? Or do you, do you still see the, the universities and the apprenticeships as the, the main routes in? Well, there's two levels of apprenticeship. One is the existing one that we have at the moment, which is a level six uh, degree apprenticeship, which tends to take the key support worker and allow them to progress over uh, they give them the first year of it uh, with experiential learning over a year or two from being in the workplace and having previous experiences. And then they normally do level five, level six, um, sort of earn as you learn in the apprenticeship model. That's one. The other one is the new um, level four enhanced paramedic apprenticeship, which is coming in to allow people to come in at or support workers with an apprenticeship route. Mm. So there are some other options. T-levels haven't really touched to us yet. Um, where we are seeing big growth is in post-degree development. Um, people it's really interesting, to, yeah. Yeah, big development towards master's degrees. That's an incredibly common qualification in the paramedic world where people want to go into specialist fields. Yeah. And, you know, there's probably over 200 paramedics that I am aware of, and I'm sure there's more, who are either studying towards a doctorate or have completed their doctorate studies. Mm. So that's great news also, for the profession as a whole, isn't it? Well, that feeds heavily into research. We need evidence-based medicine. Yeah. It feeds heavily into, into good quality education. And some of the best clinical leaders, perhaps consultant paramedics, would be expected to complete at least a doctorate and cover the four pillars of what they call advanced practice, which would be focus, very heavily focused on education, clinical research and leadership and management mm, yeah so those are the sort of core leads at the moment and obviously at the college of paramedics you do a lot of work with the body as a whole with things like lifelong learning and continuous cpd or professional development what do you think the main areas are that you're seeing interest in from from the sector in terms of uh, of a need for for professional development Continuous professional development has been um, with us for many years, but it has had a greater focus in the last 12 to 15 years when mm -hmm. being um, part of a regulated profession, you have to complete CPD on a continuous cycle and you may be uh, audited for that every couple of years. Okay. So you have to prove what you've been up to. Within the actual CPD that paramedics are doing at the moment is the professional body, the College of Paramedics, has 1,500 pieces of professional learning that they can undertake online, or we have recorded previous sessions of CPD in face-to-face uh, -face situations where they can review them. We have agreements with um, paramedicine in Australia where we share our CPD with them and they with us. Oh, wow. Um, 
So that that's a really good thing. We're hoping yeah. also to do something like that again with um, uh, Canada. Um, that's probably a little way off yet, but we're wanting to do that. And that starts to have a sharing on an international level. Because mm. broadly speaking, a paramedic in the UK and in Australia and Canada is very, very similar. Yeah. And there's some nice models there. And the key things that our paramedics want out of CPD is usually it's, it's the areas of clinical focus where they're not seeing those cases very often. Mm. So, you, you know, for example, 4% of what we do is trauma. Yeah. You can't, on a, on a main three-year course, just give 4% of the course over to trauma. You have to do a little more than that. So, But they won't see the experiences afterwards to maintain that. And that knowledge, yeah. With, yeah. Childbirth is not that common. Some people have delivered 10, 15, 20 babies as part of their primary career. But there will be others that have gone 10 years since they've last delivered a baby. So it's absolutely vital that they top that up and refresh that. And the simplest and easiest way, you can't just go into a maternity department and say, oh, let's put a load of paramedics in here. So <laughs> there will be learning online to make sure that you're properly prepared to support your client base. Yeah, it's a real challenge, isn't it? Because such a, I mean, with basically first responders, so you, you almost need to have the kind of broad base of knowledge that a GP would have to some extent to deal with such a varied range of uh range of situations yeah we're, we're very generalist i mean yeah. the concept of being a paramedic is you don't know what you're going to i mean you may get some indication through your control system you perhaps send a message to your radio or through your, your connections that way but you really don't know when you knock on that door and the door opens who's behind it and it's uh, it, that's part of the joy of the job and it's yeah. also part of the challenge of the job so you have to be prepared for everything the moment you start to specialise, which is a good thing, you normally go up to more of an enhanced level, heading towards advanced practice, but your client base is a much more narrow field. So there are a number of paramedics who specialise in, say, critical care paramedicine, and they would be working on, say, air ambulances or on motorcycle car responses to very niche, tough calls, but they tend to focus on that and become expert in that field. And there's others that do end of life care yeah. um, or others that are working in frailty and care of the elderly or perhaps others who are working in GP practice. So you start off in that generalist view and then you start to specialise afterwards. Just shows how important that evolution or transformation of education within yeah. uh, the sector has been over time because clearly that, that broad knowledge base is so important to, to, to do the job well. Yeah, well, we're, we're lucky. I mean, I mentioned at the beginning, my dad and myself and my son as, as paramedics. Yeah. But I think what we're seeing is um, the changes over the years from being a transportation system. And some people still think of ambulances and paramedics as people who transport. Actually, the core use of an ambulance is to get you there and take all the right kit where you take the care to the patient. Mm. You don't... It's a lesser stage is taking the patient to the care. And that will happen in set situations. But there are services now with advanced paramedics only taking one in four of the patients that they attend. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Really, really interesting. Mm. So, I mean, just to, I, I know you're quite short for time today. So I'm just going to ask you with one final question. Uh, in your opinion, if you were training to be a paramedic now, um, what would be your what would be your advice in terms of preparing yourself for 
the the real world and for a long and sustained and uh, and also a successful career. I think all of that comes down to preparation and planning. Mm. Um, too often in life, we we prefer that we plan for our holiday or for buying a car, but we don't yeah. prefer and plan for our life. So I think if you you know you're doing your GCSEs and you're thinking where does this want to take me, and you're thinking well I probably want to do A levels. That's when you start to need to think about a career because you need to pick the right A levels for your career. You know, if you did uh, history, art, and woodwork, you're not likely to get to med school. Mm. So you need to be picking the right things. That's part of your plan. And the other thing is in preparation is, do you know very much about the role that you think you want to do? So it's actually finding out what is a, what is a paramedic? What do they do? If you're using Google or um, TV programs to give you that information, it's not as helpful as actually getting to the core of the issues. So that's how I would encourage people is to do proper preparation and planning, and that will enhance your position and your performance in the latter stages. And I think pre-learning, pre-reading, um, and getting ready for what is coming at you is always a good thing. When I talk to young students, I always when they ask me about you know about what they're doing in student parents and how I would handle it, is I say too many of you leave your um, your revision and your your core work to the last minute. And so you really do need to start it the day after the assignments. <laughs> That's worldwide, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. I mean, so can I sneak in one final question? Because that was yeah, such a good answer. Um, and it just made me think, well, so that was such great advice if you're thinking of if you're thinking of going to the sector. But what would you say to universities and to training providers that are delivering these courses? What can they do to, to best support from an educational point of view that transition from, um, yeah. from, from theory to practice? Well, I'm going to accept that a university is business and they need people and they need that money coming in to sustain the bigger work of what they're trying to do as an institution. Yeah. That's that's a given. So what they can do to help us is also accept that there is a finite limit to the numbers of students you can place on a course mm. because there's not the placement opportunities for mass mass numbers. Mm. Okay. It, it's harder to place 100 students than it is 30 or 40. I think the other thing to do is to also make sure that you maintain staff and student ratios. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, it's a very practical course. And yeah. It is very hands-on, and it does require uh, a disproportionate higher level of, of tutor ratio than perhaps if you were teaching a formal academic course with pure lectures where you can talk to 300 people in a lecture theatre. With nursing, paramedicine, physio, it is far more hands-on and far more sort of you know, connected, uh, practical, kinetic things. And so you've got to have that, that, that level of there. And sadly, that's often the challenge when you're trying to balance the books up. Um, we're doing okay at the moment. We're progressing forward. Um, and, you know, I, I've never, ever regretted taking my choice into being a paramedic. And whilst it's now 42 years since I took that journey, and it may only have a couple more years left because I probably need to sort of switch to gardening and pottering about in the house. Ah, uh, don't make me jealous. It's a great <laughs> career. And I hope more people out there want to become paramedics. Well, uh, thank you so much for your, your wise words. So if you're thinking of going into paramedicine prepping and planning, and if you're 
delivering quality, not quantity. Wise, wise words. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Bob. I really appreciate it. I know we had some technical issues um, to getting this getting this recorded, so I really appreciate your patience, and it's been wonderful to, to chat with you. Thanks. Well, thank you very much. And uh, cheerio, everyone who's listening. Speak soon. Bye. Bye.